You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. You know, it's been said that this church, the Church of Thyatira, and its conditions represents that period of history known as the Dark Ages, which spanned the 7th through the 16th centuries, from 600 through 1500 AD, when the world saw the rapid rise of Romanism and the papacy yielded her power. Have you ever noticed the dual fulfillment aspect of certain prophecies found within the Bible? Perhaps more notable of these is the stark contrast between key events in history and the state of each church addressed in the seven letters of Jesus. As Pastor Mike will teach you in his message today, it's widely believed, with good reason, that Thyatira represents the Dark Ages. In his study, You'll learn how the rise of the Catholic Church and the papacy are remarkably similar to the church at Thyatira. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Revelation chapter 2 as he begins his message, Thyatira, the corrupt church. I remember what you said, you move into Revelation chapter 2, and our text is found in verses 18 through 29, and this is a part of those seven letters that were written by Jesus to the seven churches there in the book of Revelation. This message, the title is Thyatira, the Corrupt Church. So let's go ahead and read that text of scripture, and then we'll ask God's blessing on the remainder of our time together. So Revelation chapter 2, picking up then in verse 18. And to the angel, or the overseer, uh, more literally the pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Notice the way that Christ is presenting himself uh, here in these first couple of verses of Scripture. He says, I know your works, your love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. But nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And thus comes the indictment. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, they were guilty of the sin of compromise. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, 
and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. So this is the Lord's counsel. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power unto the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So once again, Thyatira, the corrupt church. Now let me begin by giving you a little bit of a historical background consider, uh, concerning this location. The city of Thyatira was located southeast of Pergamos, halfway between that city and Sardis. It was a great industrial center, prosperous in trade and commerce. In fact, archaeological discoveries reveal that Thyatira was a well-known center for its many trade guilds. Uh, the equivalent of that today would be, like, for example, our unions, like, for example, the Carpenters Union, uh, the Transit Workers Union, the Iron Workers Unions. So its organized groups included associations of potters, tanners, bronze workers, and dyers. All were found there in Thyatira. Now, you remember Lydia back in Acts chapter 16? She was one of Paul's uh, converts, and uh, she was from Thyatira. And we are told there in that book of Acts that she had come to Philippi on a business trip. She was a business uh, woman. And while she was there in Philippi, she heard Paul preach. And uh, she obviously gave her life to Christ. And then after that experience, went back to Thyatira, where she witnessed to those people that she knew. In fact, uh, her whole entire family was baptized. We're told that in Acts chapter 16, uh, there in verse 15. And that's probably how the church at Thyatira began. So that's just a little bit of a background concerning this location and how this church came into existence. Now, with that said, that brings us to our first point, and that is Christ's different descriptions. And I wanted you to take special note of the way that Jesus presents himself uh, to those people at Thyatira in this letter that's been addressed to them. First of all, notice Jesus introduces himself to this church there in verse, uh, verse 18 as the Son of God. And remember, we've already established this, that in each of the seven letters, the way that Jesus presents himself uh, to the, the people that he sent those letters to, the various churches, is relevant to the issues that he's going to address within those letters. Sometimes it had to do with the sin that they were allowing to go on there within the church, the sins that they were participating uh, in. So there is a reason for this. You know, it's been said that this church, the Church of Thyatira, and its conditions represents that period of history known as the Dark Ages, which spanned the 7th 
through the 16th centuries, from 600 through 1500 AD, when the world saw the rapid rise of Romanism and the papacy yielded her power, during which time many unscriptural practices and counterfeit substitutions were introduced into the church. And we talked a little bit about this last time. For example, I'm not going to go, go through an extensive list, but just to remind you about some of those things. Like, for example, it was during that time where prayers for the dead were introduced. The making the sign of the cross, the worship of saints and angels. It was then where mass was first instituted. It was also during that period of time where the worship of Mary begun where priests began dressing differently than laymen, where extreme unction was introduced, and extreme unction was the last rites that was given to a dying person. The doctrine of purgatory was also introduced during that time. Worship services conducted in Latin, and then prayers directed to Mary. Now, this is just a short list of those false practices, those substitutes, those counterfeits that were introduced into the church during this particular period of time. So anyway, to this church, representing that era of church history, notice again, Jesus declares himself the Son of God. Now Ford Ottoman, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, addresses this subject of Jesus presenting himself in this way and for what reason. And he said, and I quote, As the Son of God... He rebukes the church that would degrade him and keep him the son of a human mother while exalting her above him as the mother of God and the queen of heaven. Our Lord knows exactly when and where to insist upon his divine prerogative as the son of God. He would have all of Cerberus with their queenly assumptions know that he is the very son of God who alone speaks with supreme and final authority. He would have all men know that they are not dealing with prophets like Moses and Elijah, nor with apostles like Peter and Paul. They are dealing with deity, with the divine Son of God himself. So the rise of Romanism made Jesus popular as the son of Mary, a position, if you think about it, that robs him of his essential deity and thereby degrades him. But God had a son, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. While it was truly prophesied, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, it is equally true that the son was given before ever he was born of Mary. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. You see, Romanism, he goes on, teaches those under its power that they must pray to Mary in order to get through to God. And this fallacy is nowhere hinted at in the scriptures. In fact, on the contrary, our Lord taught that the Father was to be approached in the Son's name. For example, let me give you a couple of cross-references. If you quickly turn with me to the Gospel according to John in chapter 14, let me read a text of scripture for you there that proves this point. John 14, verses 13 and 14. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And whatsoever you ask in my name... That I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, not in anyone else's name, but in my name, he goes on to declare, I will do it. 
If you jump ahead to John's gospel in chapter 16, basically he says the same thing. In other words, in chapter 16 and verses 23 and 24, he says, And in that day you will ask me nothing, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So this is the way that we approach God the Father. It's through God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so anyway, in anticipation of the claims of Rome, he plainly, Jesus, refers to himself as the Son of God. Why? Well, in Thyatira, there was an effort to lower the dignity of his name and who Jesus was. So anyway, that's the first way that he's presented to us here in this letter. The first way that he's described to us, for us, in this letter. But then also notice, Jesus is further described, let's go back to our text in verse 18, as the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Now this is not the first time that Jesus is presented to us in this way. Remember in our introduction uh, to this uh, revelation that John had received, this was the first way that Jesus presented himself to John in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 14. And there he's standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And remember back then in that introductory message I had suggested that the menorah, the seven golden candlesticks, in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament dispensation, represented the nation of Israel, whereas under the New Testament dispensation, or in the New Testament dispensation, it represents the church. And where is Jesus? He's standing right in the midst of it. He's examining everything that's going on within the church. He is intensely concerned, particularly if sin was going on in the church or was being tolerated by the church. And thus, uh, we have this description as the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. You know, Joseph Seitz, in his commentary, commenting on this point, said, There is nothing more piercing than flaming fire. Everything yields and melts before it. It penetrates all things, consumes every opposition, sweeps down all obstructions, and presses its way with invincible power. And of this sort are the eyes of Jesus. They look through everything. They pierce through all masks and coverings. They search the remotest recesses. They behold the most hidden things of the soul, and there is no escape from him. As the Son of God, he is omniscient, that is, he knows all things, as well as Almighty. This is a most solemn truth. So, Basically, what he's suggesting here is that Jesus is the heart knower. Now, this is something that has been consistently broadcast throughout the New Testament. Like, for example, in the book of Acts in chapter 1 and verse 24, let me set this up for you. Remember, Judas Iscariot had betrayed the Lord, and uh, he had killed himself, he hung himself, and, uh, and so, for some reason, the other apostles got it in their heads that they needed to find someone to replace Judas Iscariot. So how were they going to go about that? They figured that God couldn't move or God couldn't work unless there were 12 apostles, which is absolutely ridiculous. So they felt as if they wanted to help God out. Listen, folks, God doesn't need our help. 
So how did they go about this? Well, they considered those other disciples who might fill that position, and it, uh, it came down to two individuals. So how were they going to choose one of the two? Well, they drew lots, the Bible tells us there, in the book of Acts. And anyway, the, the lot, or the straw, if you will, a more contemporary explanation, fell upon a fellow whose name was Matthias. And so he was numbered with the other 11, and thus they had the 12 apostles. But interestingly enough, you know, going forward, the rest of the book of Acts, there's no mention of this guy whatsoever. So obviously this wasn't God's choice. You know, if the 11 would have just waited, they would have realized that God had already chosen someone to fill Judas Iscariot's place. And of course, that would have been Paul the Apostle. But anyway, during that whole period of time, when they were trying to figure out who they were going to number in Judas's place, uh, they make their appeal unto God for help, and they pray. And this was the prayer that they prayed. Thou, O Lord, which knows the hearts of all men. Again, once again, Jesus is the heart knower. You know, in John's Gospel in chapter 2, in verses 24 and 25, there we are told concerning Christ. He knows all men. He knows what is in men. So listen, no human has ever escaped him. That is the all-knowing gaze of our God. Now, this would be a bummer if you were an unbeliever and you were trying to escape the Lord. You were running from the Lord. You were seeking to hide your sin from the Lord, which is an impossibility. So if you, know, you would fall into that category, it would be a real bummer. But if you were a believer, you would consider this that is a blessing. That is that he is the heart knower. For those of us who are seeking the Lord, this becomes a, an encouragement because we know that he's with us. We know that he's watching out for us. We know that he's looking down the road and only he has the capacity to see what's around the corner. And, uh, and, and all of our days are numbered by him. And the desired and the end of which will be a blessing. He always brings us to that desired, blessed end. So for those of us who are believers, this would be a huge blessing. So anyway, let us learn to walk in his presence and be careful realizing that he knows all. But that's not the only way that he's presented to us or described for us here in this letter. Notice also, let's go back to our text in verse 18. We are told there, that his feet are like fine brass. Now, what does that signify? Well, here, Jesus takes on the symbol of judgment. Now, we've already talked about this in one of our past studies. And, I, and if you remember, I mentioned that brass is that metal in the scriptures that represents judgment. For example, the altar of brass, where the sacrifices were offered, where sin was judged. And so what's the idea here then? And why did Jesus present himself in this way? Well, here the idea is sin must be judged. Remember, Jesus is scrutinizing everything that's going on within this church. And he's standing in judgment. And God can never be silent or inactive when sin is present. And listen, there was sin. 
that needed to be addressed there in that church. And listen, if the guilty in Thyatira or in America and in any other place will not repent and come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, then they must face him when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Revelation chapter 19. But in that day, his judgment shall be strong. It shall be swift. It shall be righteousness. But these, the present days, are the days of grace. When we are told, like for example in Romans chapter 10, when his feet are a thing of beauty, as he brings good tidings of salvation. Oh, that sinful men and women would come to see this truth, that they would just come to Jesus. So anyway, these are the different ways that Jesus is described for us here in this letter. So that's our first point. Now that brings us to our second point, and that is admirable qualities. That is the qualities that existed there within the church at Thyatira that were commendable. Now here's some of the good things that were going on in this church that drew our Lord's approval. Notice, let's go back now, verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works and your charity, or more accurately, your love. Okay, so with all of the flaws within that church, as we shall see as we continue to go through this letter this morning, there was also some good things that were happening. And notice, love led their list of virtues, which is very important. I mean, think about it. Christianity, the, the badge of Christianity is love. Jesus himself said that they would know that you're my disciples by your love one towards another. You see, this is the very essence and the chief attribute of God himself. Like, for example, in 1 John in chapter 4, there John describes God in this way. He simply says, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. So it's the chief attribute of Christianity, the chief attribute of God himself. So if we are partakers of the divine nature, as Peter suggests in his second epistle, that indicates then that the love of God, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, Paul said it well, then the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul in another text in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 referred to the chief uh, Christian characteristic as love. In his uh, letter written to the church at Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, he says there, for the fruit of the Spirit is what? Is love. And so anyway, the saints there at Thyatira were dwelling together in an increasing love. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh my heart. We're so glad you joined us today on In My Father's House for our continuing verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. If you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Mike, please visit our website at harvestnyc.org. 
You can listen online at oneplace.com by searching for Harvest Christian Fellowship or Pastor Mike Venizio. Viewing our recent services can be an option as well through Vimeo. We also invite you to subscribe to our podcast. Just search your favorite platform for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio. If you're in Midtown Manhattan and looking for a church home, come visit us here at Harvest Christian Fellowship. We meet every week for worship, Bible study, and fellowship. It's easy to get here. You can reserve your seat and get directions at our website. If you can't make it in person, that's okay. Join us on the live stream to participate in our services virtually. Just follow the link at harvestnyc.org. If you have any questions for us, just give us a call at 212-247-1877. We'd be honored to pray for you too, so feel free to let us know how we can do that for you. That number again is 212-247-1877. Would you like to connect with us on social media? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just follow the links at harvestnyc.org. We're so glad you took the time to listen in today, and we hope you'll join us again next time on In My Father's House. There's a place for